and this honorable court. Morning to council. Um, not sure that you were here uh, at the beginning of the first case. I indicated that Justice Irvin has uh, potentially been exposed to COVID, so he will be wearing his mask today. Uh, our next case is State versus Jones, and we'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court. Good morning. I'm Assistant Appellate Defender Nicholas Woomer Dieters on behalf of the defendant. Tony Jones. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, please. Nearly 50 years have passed since the United States Supreme Court held in Gagnon versus Scarpelli that defendants at probation revocation hearings are guaranteed due process. And further, that the minimum requirements of due process accorded such defendants include the right to confront and cross-examine adverse witnesses unless the hearing officer specifically finds good cause for not allowing confrontation. The General Assembly codified Gagnon in Section 15A, 1345. The portion of that statute relevant here is subsection E, which provides that defendants at probation revocation hearings may confront and cross-examine adverse witnesses unless the court finds good cause for not allowing confrontation. The Court of Appeals held that Mr. Jones waived his right to confrontation for two reasons. First, because he failed to subpoena the state's witness against him. And second, because he did not ask the trial court to make a good cause finding that confrontation should not be allowed. This decision is not simply erroneous as a legal matter. It eviscerates defendant's right to confrontation at probation vi violation hearings by making it practically impossible to properly assert the confrontation rights. And before I explain why, I'd like to review very quickly what happened in this case. So Mr. Jones is on probation. He's pulled over for speeding, and at least three officers approached his car. He's ordered to get out of the car, he complied, and one of the officers, a detective Valdiviso, apparently noticed the butt of a pistol stuck between the cushion and the center console. Detective Valdiviso alerted another officer, Sergeant Norwood, to the gun, and, and Sergeant Norwood seized it. Mr. Jones was charged with possession of a firearm by a felon and carrying a concealed firearm. His counsel moved to suppress evidence from the stop. There was a suppression hearing, and only two people testified, Mr. Jones and Sergeant Norwood. The court denied the suppression motion, but when the charges went to a jury, there was a mistrial. And it's only after a mistrial is declared that Mr. Jones's probation officer filed violation reports alleging that he committed new offenses. They hold a probation revocation hearing in front of the same judge who presided over the trial proceedings and the suppression hearing. And to prove the commission of, of a new offense, the prosecutor moved to introduce the transcript of the suppression hearing that was held earlier where Norwood testified as the state's sole witness. Now the prosecutor argued that the judge had already heard Sergeant Norwood's testimony and that the transcript should be admitted for the purposes of judicial economy. But, if the transcript wasn't admitted, the prosecutor said he was prepared to call Sergeant Norwood anyway. Defense counsel objected to admitting the transcripts, but he didn't state any specific grounds for his objection. The judge admitted the transcript and revoked Mr. Jones's probation upon finding that he committed a new offense. On appeal, Mr. Jones argued that the trial court violated his right to confrontation by admitting the transcript over his objection but the Court of Appeals held that he waived his confrontation rights for two reasons. The court's first rationale was that Mr. Jones failed to subpoena Sergeant Norwood, the state's witness against him. And it's hard to overstate how strange this reasoning is. A cornerstone of our legal tradition, if not the cornerstone, is that the moving party has the burden of proof and the burden of, 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 of production. 
at a probation revocation hearing, the moving party, so to speak, is the state. The state has the burden of showing that the defendant violated conditions of its probation. The opinion below turns this fundamental principle on its head by holding that a defendant waives his right to confront adverse witnesses unless he calls those witnesses himself to testify against him. And the Court of Appeals shifted that burden at probation revocation hearings from the state to defendants. There's also a problem with the opinion in that it confuses the right to confrontation with the right to compulsory process. A defendant at a criminal trial has a Sixth Amendment right to confrontation. A defendant at a probation revocation hearing has a much weaker right to confrontation, which is derived from the Due Process Clause. It's weaker because it can be overridden when a court finds good cause not to allow confrontation. The difference between Sixth Amendment confrontation and the due, conf and the due process confrontation is one of degree and not scope. In other words, the only difference between them is that a defendant is not entitled to confrontation under due process if the court makes a good cause finding that confrontation should not be allowed. Now, as the brief discusses in Melendez-Diaz, which is obviously a Sixth Amendment case, the U.S. Supreme Court warned against conflating the right to compulsory process with the right to confrontation. They're two distinct rights. Compulsory process gives defendants the right to subpoena their own witnesses. The right to confrontation puts the burden on the state to present its witnesses against the defendant. And the Court of Appeals confused this distinction. Furthermore, the opinion below makes it extraordinarily difficult, if not practically impossible, for a defendant to assert his confrontation rights. In this case, there are at least three different officers who approached Mr. Jones's car when he, when he was stopped. I'm, I'm Mr. Wimmer Dieters, just to make sure I'm following you, when you say the state is, the, 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 the decision makes it extraordinary, I think your word was extraordinarily difficult to um, assert the right of confrontation. Are you making that argument solely in the context of the court's statements about the defendant's failure to subpoena Officer Norwood, or are you making a broader argument there? I'm making a broader argument, um, Your Honor. I mean, the, 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 well, I don't, I don't want to get, get ahead of myself, but let's say hypothetically I had the same thing except that the defendant had said, Your Honor, I object the admission of this order and the uh, admission of this transcript violates my statutory right under GS-15A-1345E and Gagnon, Gagnon, I can't pronounce it correctly this morning for some reason, um, I mean, he can, it's not that hard to say that. Uh, I don't think anybody would deny that that type of objection would be sufficient to raise the confrontation clause or the confrontation issue. Why? Help me, you know, given, given the relative ease with which someone could do that, recognizing having been there myself in the heat of, heat of trial, you don't always remember everything. But why, why, why does the opinion make it extraordinarily difficult to assert a confrontation right. Yeah, when I, Outs, outside, outside the context of the statements about subpoenaing the... I, 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 the, the statement about this, that, my, when I said that, it applied really to the subpoena issue. Okay. Now, with, with respect to the other issue, I mean, we can talk about that, and I, I, I intend and I assume to, we'll get to that in due time, but I just wanted to make sure I was following... Right. I mean, I, there's, there's no question that the attorney in this case could have, I mean, cited chapter and verse right. Gagnon and, and, um, and 15A, 1345E. And, um, I mean, I, and didn't do that. He, he did not do that, I mean, candidly, and, 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 and I, I, I will get to that momentarily with the court's okay, thank you. permission. I'm just trying to, trying to make sure I'm following. But, but going back to the subpoena issue, because again, they're, they're, these are the two grounds that the Court of Appeals uh, holds are the basis for the waiver here, um, you know, there are three different officers, at least, who approached this car. The defense had no way of knowing exactly how the prosecutor intended to prove the commission of a new offense here. But the state potentially could have introduced statements or reports from all three of these officers involved at the stop, in the stop at the revocation hearing. 
So under the reasoning of the Court of Appeals, Mr. Jones would have had to subpoena all three of those officers to ensure that he did not waive his right to confrontation. Those officers would be sitting in court. They might, he might not have to call them because, he, again, he doesn't know what the state is, is, how the state is planning on making its case, but we've got three officers who are off, you know, out, off the streets, sitting in court, waiting to see if it's necessary for them to actually testify. Didn't, didn't the state indicate that the officer was uh, prepared to testify? He did, they did, Your Honor. And, and is there any evidence or anything in the record that indicates that um, uh, the trial court uh, refused or otherwise prohibited the defendant from calling him? The, the defendant did not call the officer. The defendant objected to the admission of the transcript and the trial court um, I guess overruled the objection and admitted the transcript into evidence. And knowing that the officer was available and prepared to testify, uh, the defendant did not indicate that he wished to confront the officer. I think this, this kind of goes to the second issue, or the second rationale, Your Honor. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, base, the basis for the objection was clear from the context because there's really nothing else, no other basis for the objection, right? Um, the, uh, you know, the formal rules of evidence don't apply at confrontation here, I'm sorry, probation hearings. Um, well, to, to say that there's no basis for the objection other than confrontation, you have two places where there are objections. One, with the order, at least as I understood the transcript, it's the statement the counsel made there was the issue at the suppression hearing is different than the issue now. That's correct. And then the other time there was no statement, no, it was just a pure general objection. Yes, and, and I think that th th that's one of the problems that the Court of, Afe of Appeals kind of conflated. They conflated the, the, the more specific objection to the admission of the order and the findings of fact to... But, but at least with respect to the transcript, we have nothing other than a general objection. That's a general objection, yes, yes Your Honor. So our contention is that from the context, the, there's, there's only one thing it could have been, which is, which is the, uh, the long-recognized constitutional right to due process confrontation at probation revocation hearings, in addition to that's codified into the statute. Why, why couldn't it have been, in essence, again, this transcript was developed at the suppression hearing, the issue in the suppression hearing is different than the issue of whether I'm guilty of these offenses, therefore I object on that basis. How's the trial court supposed to know that it's confrontation as compared to this whole set of factual documents goes to a different issue that's not before us and on that ground I object. I, I think the difference is, well, for one thing, I think that's a valid point, right? And I, I think it's important to, you know, when, when assessing the prejudice here, it is the case that the, the scope or of, of the former hearing, of the uh, suppression hearing, is a, it's a legal question. Well, it, it may, I mean, it, 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 with that respect, I, mean, I don't think I disagree with you, but what I'm concerned about is how is the trial co court supposed to know that we have an objection based on confrontation grounds given what counsel said? Right. I, I think that, you know, again, the if you read the transcript, it's, it could be clear. I mean, I've, I've, I've done probation hearings before. I know how these go. But. And, and I, you know, there's also, I mean, let's go back to the language of the statute then. I think maybe we should, instead of, uh, it might be appropriate to turn to, to the asking. Um, you know, there's a statute, this court is all but held between State versus Coltrane and State versus Morgan that 15A, 1345E imposes a statutory mandate on the court. Has it ever explicitly said that? It did not explicitly say that, but, but here's, but what happened in Coltrane, in, first of all, in Coltrane, there was no objection from the defendant um, that, uh, as to, that the court was, had violated the defendant's confrontation rights. And this I, hate, court, I hate to monopolize your time, but you're going right to the series of questions I was going to ask, so don't just proceed there. If you look at Coltrane, uh, in essence, it looks as if Ms. Coltrane was, or it was, in court said, go, you got some period of time to go get a job. She comes back, she's asked if she's, and the hearing consists of, you got a job, no, but 
dash, which at least the way I read transcripts, is an attempt to explain something that's cut off. Uh, and then the court reiterates, do you have a job? Answer, no. Boom, that's it. So Ms. Coltrane was clearly trying <coughs> to give an explanation for why she didn't have a job at the time the trial court cut her off. That's a little different than a situation in which we have a counsel who lodges a general objection to one piece of evidence and a uh, uh, more specific objection based on the difference in the purpose for the suppression hearing as compared to the probation hearing. Your Honor, I, I would acknowledge that, and I think the my answer to that is to look at the state, this court's more recent decision in State versus Morgan, where this court analyzed Coltrane. And in, in Morgan, uh, this court made it clear uh, that 15A, 1345E imposes a statutory mandate. And here's what this court explained. Because no findings were made by the trial court that there was good cause for not allowing confrontation, and this is referring to the Coltrane case, that the trial court failed to comply with this, in this court called it a statutory requirement. Morgan went on to recognize. Well, and, and that's pretty clear. I mean, the statute says if the issue, I mean, even the most restricted reading of the statute is if the issue of confrontation comes up, you've got to recognize the right unless those two findings are made. I mean, I don't think anybody disputes that, do they? I, I, I don't, I mean, I think that's, I, I'm, I mean, it seems to me. It seems to me Morgan is saying the question of confrontation. I mean, one reading of Morgan is if the question of confrontation comes up and you don't make these findings, it's error. That's correct. But to say that Morgan holds that uh, 15A 1345E is a statutory mandate that the trial court must comply with in the absence of an objection, how do you get that out of Morgan? Well, I think it, it calls it, a, it's a, if it's a statutory requirement that applies to the trial court, and what Morgan said more broadly is what, when a statute contains the language the court finds, um, the trial court uh, cannot, um, the finding must actually be made, and the, and the trial court, and uh, Even, by the trial court, and the finding can't simply be inferred from the record. So, so your reading of 15 A1345 is that any time the trial court understands that a defendant may have a confrontation right, the trial court must intervene regardless of what any, anybody else may do and make those findings or acting on its own motion sustain an objection? The theory is that there's a statutory mandate. That would be our principal theory of preservation. How does, how does that argument square with the use of may in the statute? The may in this, um, in other words, the defendant. I mean, I've got it. Let me see if I can. Put right. It. The, the defendant may confront and cross-examine adverse witnesses. I mean, he's. Doesn't that suggest that a defendant can waive the right to cross-examine? Oh, it, it, I, and, I think. If it, a defendant can waive a right to cross-examination, how is this a uh, statutory mandate that compels a def compels the trial court even in the absence of an objection to either exclude evidence that arguably uh, deals with the con you know invoke affects confrontation or, or make the two findings well i mean the defendant doesn't have to cross-examine the state's witness i think the, the the point of the confrontation clause is that the state's required to bring the witnesses against the defendant to be subject to cross-examination as the defendant sees fit. I, whether he chooses to exercise that right or not, I think is that's what the, that's what the statutory language that, that we're discussing. So your argument is that once the defendant starts to cross-examine, all the trial court has an independent obligation separate and apart from a specific objection to intervene if a confrontation issue may come up? I, I, I think that um, I, I would say no, Your Honor. Um, I think the question, I mean, and, and again here, I think it's the, the, there was an objection, unlike Coltrane. You know, there is a general objection here. And, and, right. and so that, um, it, uh, it, and so the question is, well, what's the basis of the objection? And right. our contention is that it, it was apparent from the context 
uh, and because we have the statute that, again, um, imposes a, what this court has called a statutory requirement on the court um, to, uh, to make a finding if it's not going to allow confrontation. Counsel, let me, let me make sure I understand uh, something I think I heard you say. D did you indicate that the state is required to have all of their witnesses present uh, at a probation violation hearing? No, Your Honor, but a state, but the, well, uh, let, me, let me back up there. If the state is presenting, let's say, uh, reports or, or whatever, um, out-of-court information and bringing that into court and it's, it's of a testimonial nature, then, the, then the, the state should bring that witness to court. And if it, if it does it, I mean, this, uh, I guess, uh, um, you know, the, the state has to call the witnesses that establish its case. So, so the state, uh, in, in reviewing a case, has, has a transcript of sworn testimony. Uh, and even though they're allowed to present hearsay testimony, letters, affidavits, um, any number of different forms of evidence, um, that, that the state in preparing for their case, a summary proceeding, um, must have every witness present and prepared to testify and have them present in court for, for a proceeding that is deemed summary. I'm not saying, I mean, I guess it, the, the question would be what are we talking about, every witness or just the witnesses that the prosecutor deems necessary to establish the violation? So, so how, but how would the state know that when uh, after the hearing uh, the defendant could go, you know, I really wanted to cross-examine that individual? Well, I, I mean, I think that when the, if the, well, for one thing, the defendant objected to the, the state's evidence here. Um, and, and so uh, it, it's not as if we're, he's going back and say, I really would have liked to have cross-examined this individual. He objected to the admission of the transcript. And we have a statute which says that he's entitled to confront that witness against him. What witness? The, 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 any adverse witness. That's but, what the statute says. But there was does. no witness called in the, in the hearing, or at least on that point. The witness would have been uh, Sergeant Norwood. And did he have the opportunity to cross-examine him previously? He had the chance to cross-examine Sergeant Norwood in the context of a suppression hearing. And what was the purpose of the motion to suppress? To exclude evidence. What, and what evidence specifically? It was the evidence of the, the gun found in the car. But just to follow up on what the statute provides, because it, it actually goes on to say, um, formal rules of evidence do not apply at the hearing, but the record or recollection of evidence or testimony introduced at the preliminary hearing on probation violation are inadmissible as evidence at the revocation hearing. Doesn't that lend some further support to the notion that while this is a um, due process right to confront as opposed to a Sixth Amendment right to confront, the statutory compilation um, seems to support the idea that witnesses should come in person, that you use transcripts from other proceedings. S certainly, Your Honor. And, and again, um, you, uh, I, it's always possible the defendant could waive the right to, to um, you can always, um, I, I guess, stipulate to the admission of reports and transcripts and so forth. But that's, that right lies with the defendant, not with the state. It's not the defendant's burden to make the state's case for it. And, and, and so let me, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask you, at this particular probation hearing, when the defendant objected, if we adopted your interpretation of the, what, the, what the statute requires, what should the trial judge have done then? I think the trial judge should have said, uh, your, uh, your, your motion is denied to the prosecutor. The motion's denied. Why don't you call Sergeant Norwood and we'll have a hearing? Um, apparently, he was readily available. It wouldn't have been difficult. There's, if you read these few pages, um, it's, there's nothing that suggests that he's unavailable or difficult to call or even that he's not out in the hallway. The, the prosecutor is completely willing to call Sergeant Norwood. It's just he's like, let's get out, let's move on with this. Well, if he had not been there, say, um, if he had not been in the hall or in the building, what, what would, how would, how would, as a practical It matter? would have been appropriate to continue the, the hearing 
it would have been, I mean, in, in, and if, if there was some reason why, you know, he was gone, I, I don't, I mean, we can speculate about why he'd be unavailable, but, you know, upon a finding of good cause, um, Mr. Jones's right to confrontation um, would have been overridden and he, you know, the court could have admitted the transcript. So it, it wasn't as if, uh, this doesn't impose a huge burden on our court system. In fact, I think the opposite um, position, or the, the position advocated by the Court of Appeals in this creates this system where the defendant has to kind of preemptively, um, you know, uh, guess what, how the state intends to make its case and then call those witnesses. And then it's not clear who, who, who actually direct, does the direct examination. Is he supposed to directly examine the witnesses against him? So I, I think this, this creates a whole can of worms that just undermines the way we are, we're handling probation revocation um, proceedings in the state. Um, I, I want to just talk, well, actually, I'm going to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning. My if, name is Christine. Hold the clock a second. If you need to lower the lectern, it's, there's a oh. thing right on the right there. There you go. Thank you, sir. Good morning. My name is Christine Wright, and I represent the state in this case. The state respectfully requests the lower court's opinion and the trial court's judgment revoking defendant's probation be affirmed. The defendant did not preserve his right to confront for appellate review. At no time did the defendant request to cross-examine the state's witness, even when the state said that it was prepared to send those witnesses in if the state's request was denied by the trial court. Is it not true that in order to preserve this issue for appellate review, defendant must have presented to the trial court a timely request, objection, or motion stating specific grounds for the ruling the party desired the court to make? Here, a general objection is not good. As to the issue on appeal, a critical factor is at the probation violation hearing, the defendant only objected on the basis of relevance to the issue of State's Exhibit 1, which was the order. Defendant did not object on the basis of the right to con con confrontation, which would be defendant's right to cross-examine Sergeant Norwood. The defendant objected and said, Your Honor, but there is no evidence of guilt or innocence or any evidence or any omissions from Mr. Jones in this order. In addition, Defendant's objection to State's Exhibit 2, which was the transcript from the motion to suppress hearing, was general, and its reason is not evaluated on the transcript. The de defendant never requested to cross-examine the officer. The State clearly indicated that it was prepared to present those witnesses again if the court did not rule in the State's favor. So where is the evidence that the defendant objected on the ground of right to confront? According to defendant's brief, pages 20 and 21, and I quote, if defense counsel made any arguments concerning the admission of the transcript of the prior suppression hearing, they were made during recess in the proceedings, unquote. Not on the record, but during recess. Defendant did not preserve his right to confront the officer. So, so our rules do permit a general objection if the per, to preserve error if the purpose of the objection is clear from the context, correct? 
if it is clear. Yes. yes. And, and what then is the state's contention, particularly given that the prosecutor had, says, you know, he can bring this witness, what, what is unclear about why there would be an objection to a transcript? The objection that was made was for relevance. But here, um, before this court in the Court of Appeals, the objection is set to be for um, confrontation. But the objection on relevance was about the order. And the objection to the transcript, which the court then says, I'm going to admit this transcript over your objection. So the court must have had some understanding in order to rule on the objection. They must have understood what the objection was. They couldn't, the court couldn't say, I'm going to introduce this transcript over your objection, even though I have no idea what your objection is, right? The court must have understood what the objection was to rule on it. Yes. And the court ruled on it and said, I'm going to introduce the transcript anyway. Yes, because the court found that it, I assumed that it was relevant, relevant um, which would be opposite of what um, the defendant's objection was. Well, in his brief, the defendant um, argues that under these circumstances, the only conceivable grounds for the defense to object to the admission of the transcript is that it deprived the defendant of his statutory and constitutional right to confront and cross-examine. Um, that, that would have been obvious from the context. What do you say about that? Was there any other um, that, that would have been obvious from the context? Well, when, when I view the screen, when um, one views the transcript, it's clear that the state in um, making its motion to have the order and the transcript enter into evidence as opposed to calling an officer, the grounds were clearly for um, judicial economy. Well, doesn't the Court of Appeals also say on page eight of the slip opinion that there was an argument made by the probationer that the transcript was being introduced for the purpose of showing that he had committed an additional crime while he was on probation? Or is that erroneous by the Court of Appeals to cite that? Yes, it was entered for that purpose as well. So if that's the case, then there was indeed some other area of objection that was not necessarily clear at the time aside from the right of confrontation, if in fact there was something raised about the transcript being produced for the purpose of showing an additional crime. Is that right? Yes. I mean, well, let me just to follow up on Justice Morgan's question, I mean, I'm the one that you can't see their mouth moving, isn't it? Thank you. Uh, I mean, the truth is we just don't know what the basis for that objection was to the transcript because it's a general objection, right? Um, but I think we do know that um, the state um, argument was um, clearer than the defendant's objection. Um, and to back that up, even when the defendant requested for defendant's exhibit number one to be entered um, into evidence as opposed to having defendant's witness come to court, the defendant said, and I quote, for judicial economy, we are trying to get this affidavit published to the court. So with that being said, um, I think it's more evidence in the state's favor as to why the judge ruled. Um, so isn't saying judicial economy sort of shorthand for saying, so we don't take the time to put the witness on the stand and have the defendant cross-examine him, basically? I mean, what else could that be referring to? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, in a probation, op, um, probation violation hearing, um, Contrary to the defendant's brief, Morrissey is controlling in this case and not Crawford. Um, in Morrissey versus Brewer, um, the United States Supreme Court held, um, which applies to both parole and probation violations, and I quote, 
we emphasize there is no thought to equate this second stage of parole revocation to a criminal prosecution in any sense. It is a narrow inquiry. The process should be flexible enough to consider evidence, including letters, affidavits, and other materials that would be not admissible in an adversary criminal trial, unquote. In addition, um, Morrissey further states that at a probation hearing, the Sixth Amendment rights of the defendant are not involved. Constitutional rights and parolee probationers are protected through 14th Amendment due process, which does not call for a full panoply of rights due to a defendant in a criminal proceeding. The right to confrontation is indeed very distinct from Sixth Amendment right to confrontational, confrontation applicable to criminal prosecutions. Even though that may be the case, doesn't the, get the existence of the statute um, that says that he has a right to cross-examine unless there's good cause in the face of the prosecutor's assertion of judicial economy, which could easily mean, uh, let's not bother with that, putting him on the stand stuff, um, shouldn't that have tipped off the trial court that, oh, wait a minute, um, are we skipping past the right to cross-examine here? The, I do believe that the trial court should have been clearer, but even um, with the case as it stands, I think there is sufficient um, competent evidence in the record that would support um, the trial court's decision. What, what did the trial court do that indicated um, that he was satisfying the requirements of the statute? The statute, um, the statute requires a finding, a, a good cause finding, when, um, it, when the court rules that um, other evidence, for instance, a transcript would be admitted. Um, there is, um, again, notations in the transcript for the good cause reason, which from the state's interpretation would, would have been judicial economy. The Court of Appeals did not outright say that, and I certainly believe that the Court of Appeals, um, if this could have been clearer, um, but um, the fact that it's not totally clear, I believe that it could be rectified, but it can be gleaned from the record. Um, well, what's the responsibility of a probationer to make sure that the record is clear then? Is there an assertive right on the part of a probationer to make it clear that he or she is asserting the rights uh, of confrontation here? And what should that be if you agree that indeed there is some uh, assertive affirmative right uh, of a probationer to do so? Yes, sir. Um, in the defendant's brief, and I'm going to answer that in a roundabout way. In the defendant's brief, um, there's a quote from James Markham um, from his writings entitled Confrontation at Probation Violation Hearings, North Carolina, March 2011. And the defendant quotes in um, the brief, um, on page, I believe it's 27. While less robust than Sixth Amendment confrontation, due process confrontation is not so flexible as to be meaningless, unquote. But if you continue reading um, James Markham's writings concerning confrontation at probation violations, and I'm gonna quote what he says. He says, and finally for the probationers, it seems the best advice on this front may be that if you want to confront an adverse witness, be sure to bring it up at the probation violation hearing. 
don't raise it for the first time on appeal. And then Jamie Markham cites State v. Duncan, um, and, it, and in that case, and he quotes, nowhere in the record does it appear that the defendant acts to cross-examine any witness for the state, and particularly the state probation officer, and was refused, unquote. So the court here did not deprive the defendant of his statutory and due, press, due process right to cross-examine Sergeant Norwood. Nowhere in the record does it say that the defendant acts to cross-examine any witness for the state, particularly Officer Norwood, and was refused. We should not be concerned with what the defendant is saying now. We should be concerned about what he said on the record. Defendant is swapping horses between courts in order to get a better mount. Defendant is asking for two bites of the apple when he is only entitled to one. The trial court did not err when it admitted State's Exhibit 2. Here the judge clearly stated why he um, admitted State's Exhibits 1 and 2 in the sense that it came following um, a narrative about judicial economy. Well, so let me just ask you a little bit about this, your argument that judicial economy is good cause under the statute to deny a defendant the right to cross-examine witnesses at a probation hearing. D doesn't that essentially eliminate the right altogether? Um, I mean, it's it, always going to be faster to, to not have to call a witness in and have them get up on the stand and testify. But in this case, we have the same judge that um, heard the motion to suppress hearing, the same judge that um, heard the probation violation. Um, and this same judge in this September 14 transcript pages 19 through 12 said there may be additional evidence to be presented. Um, he left it open for the defendant to call witnesses. There wasn't a transfer of burden of proof. What this court um, interpreted was the defendant never requested to cross-examine the officer, but he may call any adverse witnesses, subpoena any witness that he wanted to, but that same defendant had the opportunity to open his mouth in court and say, hey, I would like to cross-examine um, Officer Norwood, but he never said that at any given time. It is not in the record, but what is in the defendant's brief is some conversation that happened during recess. Right, well, he did object to the introduction of the transcript. And what I'm asking about is your contention that the statute was complied with because the judge found good cause and that cause was judicial economy. And my question is, if we agree with that, aren't we essentially writing the statute out of existence? I'm sorry, the last part, are we? Aren't we essentially writing the statute out of existence? We're negating the statute. No, we're not. Um, I don't believe we are. What we're doing is um, following um, Morrissey v. Brewer, which allows for affidavits, transcripts, and other um, evidence to come in um, during probation violation hearings. We're not talking about criminal proceedings, um, the Sixth Amendment. Right, well, so. You're not contending, are you, that the, the right to cross-examine witnesses is not an element of due process? I'm not writing that out, no. Okay. So the statute contemplates that a defendant may cross-examine. Yes, it says that the rules of evidence are relaxed, and yes, affidavits can come in, but, but it also says that even in a probation hearing, the defendant has the right to cross-examine may cross-examine witnesses against him. Right. Unless may. there's good cause. Yes. Right. In, in, in addition to that, at least I understand over here, the, uh, um, your argument in your brief that effectively you've got an implied finding of good cause, how, how can that be squared with the uh, language in State versus Morgan that says, quote, such a finding simp cannot simply be inferred from the record? Mm -hmm. 
I mean, aren't you asking us to, inf at least in that part of your brief, aren't you asking us to infer a good cause finding from the record? Yes, sir. Well, how, that, if, that if you are, how can we square that yeah. with Morgan? Yeah, it, it is problematic. Um, it is. Okay, thank you. Uh, Ms. Wright, um, uh, switching gears just a little bit, um, and uh, your learned um, opponent there may correct, correct me if I misunderstood something, but in response to Justice Berger's questions about who needs to be available, what witnesses need to be available, at least what I heard uh, in, in his uh, answer was that I don't know that every witness had to be made available, but a, a very large number, and you talk about uh, that under... Um, under the case that allows for uh, transcripts and reports and that sort of thing, um, uh, and, and you mentioned judicial economy, do you agree that you need to have those witnesses in the wings, or how do you see that that, that should be applied? What What is the rule there? And again, if I've misunderstood his position, I'm sure he'll correct me here in a few minutes. Yeah. Um, just from real life, um, from a practical standpoint, um, I'm envisioning the um, state standing before the court, um, making the motion. Um, and once those, if the motion is divide, um, denied, it's the state's um, responsibility to call those witnesses. If the state, does, if those witnesses aren't called, then it's to the state's detriment. Um, sometimes, um, but in this case, they were there. But in the case if they weren't there, it would have been the state's responsibility to have those witnesses present. And if the probationer requested to know which witnesses would be called, the state would have communicated that to the defendant um, in the natural flow of how probation violation hearings normally go. It's, it's normally not a mystery, but if the state failed to come through, so to speak, it would have been to the state's detriment and the defendant would have had a good cause case of um, challenging um, based on the statute. And then just to follow up, so what I'm hearing is, is that uh, when this document, whatever it might be, whatever nature is offered up, then it would be incumbent on the defendant to object and state why. And then at that point, there would be the necessity to to provide that or not have the document brought into evidence. Is that, yes. do I have that about right? Yes. Thank you. The defendant cannot establish prejudice as there was no reasonable probability that but for the asserted error, the result of the pre proceeding would have been different. A reasonable probability is a probability sufficient to undermine confidence in the outcome. There is enough competent evidence in the record to support the trial court's finding, and these findings are absent as showing of manifest abuse of discretion. The state respectfully requests that lower court's opinion and the trial court's judgment revoking defendant's probation should be affirmed. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. May it please the court. Uh, the state mentioned the, the, the flexibility uh, at probation revocation hearings that's discussed in Morrissey versus Brewer, and that's absolutely correct. And I think it's important to emphasize that uh, probation revocation hearings are quite flexible, but they're not, the state does not have carte blanche to put on any evidence it wants. The standard here, or the, the relevant principle here, is that under due process confrontation, you have a substantially weaker right to confrontation. The reason is because once the court makes a finding that, uh, that there's good cause to override the defendant's right to confrontation, then, um, then it's, the defendant doesn't have a right anymore. Um, and, Counsel, and, and, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I would say at that point, the state is free to 
you know, admit reports and, and, and transcripts and so forth. Um, and I think that uh, the, the statute uh, recognizes that that's probably going to happen in a lot of cases. The difference is that in this particular case, where we have the officer readily available to testify, apparently, um, there, there's, there isn't any good cause. Um, Counsel, if, if I could at this point, um, your, your friend on the other side brought up the case of State versus Duncan and Mr. Markham's uh, comment on uh, that case and his uh, article that uh, is cited in your brief. Uh, you also cited State versus Duncan in uh, your brief under the section, at a probation violation hearing, defendant has a due process and statutory right to cross-examine adverse witnesses unless court finds good cause. Um, is State versus Duncan still good law? I mean, in, in the sense that, um, I mean, I think, yeah, the principle that um, that, a, that a defendant um, has the right to, um, you know, that, that if the court makes a good cause finding, that, that the defendant loses his right to confrontation. I think that's... Well, that doesn't Mr. Markham in his article go beyond that, though, and, and basically cite the factual determinations in State versus Duncan? Should, shouldn't Duncan guide our uh, decision in this case? Your Honor, it, it, I, in all candor, I'm forgetting the factual, uh, the, the specific facts that were at issue in State versus Duncan right now. It's, it, it's escaping me. I think what, in our view, the governing cases are Coltrane and Morgan in terms of the, the preservation issue. Um, and, and I think that, and, and of course, Gagnon versus Scarpelli and Morrissey versus Brewer. Um, Justice Berenger uh, mentioned that, and I think I may have misspoken when I was speaking to Justice Berger earlier, about calling every witness. And I just want to make clear um, that, um, you know, the state at these hearings has the option to either call whatever witnesses the prosecutor sees fit to establish that a probation violation occurred, or to make a showing of good cause and have the court agree that there's good cause and therefore submit in, in, instead of a live witness, transcripts, reports, and so forth. Um, I think the question here is not whether counsel, uh, counsel's objection was the best objection that he could have made. The question is whether counsel's objection to the admission of this transcript was good enough. And our contention is that Given the context where we have a statute that this court has ruled imposes a statutory requirement on the court, and given the, uh, the fact that there is really no other basis for the objection under the circumstances that this court can infer uh, an intent to lodge an objection based on the confrontation clause. This has been the law of the state. Uh, I'm sorry, it's been, it's been constitutional law for nearly half a century it's been codified into a statute which has mandatory language. Um, and so um, for those reasons, uh, we ask that uh, this court reverse the decision below. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both.